good afternoon, good morning, whatever time of day it is for you that you happen to be checking in and listening to this podcast. This is Doug Bucknett, and this is the Leadership Connection. Today, I have a very special guest, a guy by the name of Don Yates. I worked with Don many, many years ago uh, at Eastman Kodak Company. In fact, the first building I started in there was building 317, which was uh, uh, S-Tar Film. Uh, back then, it was... Uh, for graphic arts type stuff. And then later on, they perfected motion picture on that. So it was a pretty busy place. They had uh, five uh, film machines at the time. And Don was a supervisor down in that area, I believe, when I started. Uh, I think he was a, a shift supervisor, if I remember right, at that time. Yep. And uh, since that time, uh, of course, most people know Kodak ran into some serious issues with. Uh, digital photography and, and back then it was just a competitor of, of Fuji film so that we went through several downsizings together and, and worked in various locations around uh, Eastman Kodak which was a great place to work by the way uh, you know when you're an apprenticeship they move you every three months and you get to work in all types of different businesses and units and get exposed to all types of different types of equipment and uh, following that uh, Don and I our, our career paths crossed a couple times at Kodak and then outside of that, uh, as strange as it might seem, that uh, the next thing you know, Don was uh, working for uh, a couple customers that uh, I had been dealing with, and, and we bumped into one another again. So uh, it was always good to see Don. One thing I could say is that uh, he, Don has a gift of uh, really knowing how to deal with people. And so, Don, how's it going? Going fantastic, Doug. I'm, I'm glad to say that my industrial manufacturing career is pretty much at an end, and I'm working for myself now part-time. Uh, moved, moved down to Florida, left the kids and grandkids in North Carolina. Uh, after we left Kodak and Rochester, we moved down south, and uh, things are going really well. Very, very happy. Had a fantastic career. Kodak was a big part of it. Uh, 29 years I was there, uh, and uh, after Kodak, it was what I'll call a pilgrimage, and I hope we get a chance to uh, touch on some of the things that uh, that I had the good fortune to experience after my long career at Eastman Kodak. Very good. Um, one of the, the pleasures that Don and I had in terms of training at Kodak was, uh, and I talk quite a bit about it in my writings and, and on this uh, podcast, is uh, the performance management training that we took through Aubrey Daniels Associates. and. Uh, it, it was a great course, but it was one of those things that, to me, there was two things to be successful in it. One, you had to have natural leadership skills. The second was you had to work really hard at changing your behaviors, right, and understanding how your behaviors impact other people. Totally. And uh, Don really had a knack for that. I, I will say that uh, he understood performance management. We had several supervisors in the building. And some of them really struggled with with understanding that type of leadership. Uh, but anyway, Don, I do want to start out and talk about uh, your career, uh, where you went to school, if you did, uh, where different places you worked and the roles that you worked in. Yep. Well, I started out, uh, went to school at a small technical college in uh, central Ohio. Uh, couldn't afford to go to a big university. It was an opportunity for me. I got uh, a little bit of a scholarship to go there. but. Uh, it was a technical school. I actually enrolled in a, uh, an engineering technology program. Uh, spent several years there, wound up uh, getting an opportunity to join Eastman Kodak. 
unfortunately, the degree I was pursuing, an engineering technology degree, was not exactly uh, perceived as uh, uh, one of those degrees that you'd want to uh, hire somebody with. So I wound up taking an opportunity of Kodak, very similar to what you did. I went into the uh, the, the trade uh, apprenticeship. It's actually an automation electrician was something new. They called it an automatic equipment mechanic. And it was sort of an electromechanical troubleshooting, understanding systems type apprenticeship. And, uh, and I successfully went through that. And I actually wound up making some more money than some of my colleagues that went on to uh, to uh, more engineering roles than I had. So uh, that's how I started my career at Kodak. Completed the apprenticeship very early in my career, given an opportunity, two big opportunities. Uh, one was to become a supervisor, uh, was a shift supervisor for a number of years. But I also got a chance to join a major initiative at Kodak around our uh, computer maintenance management system, which was being developed in the early 80s. I remember uh, that. Yeah, many, many more years before a lot of companies had the vision to uh, get into those types of discipline systems that would help drive significant levels of improvement. Uh, I was actually on the pilot team uh, that helped develop and, and structure that system and in the division I was part of at Kodak Chemical Manufacturing. Uh, I actually got the opportunity to be the staff assistant uh, to uh, help pull together the training for not only the, the shop floor people, but also the managers and supervisors. Uh, I like to call it the dreaded staff assignment where you learn how to push the rope uh, because obviously it was a well-established company. This was a major change, a completely different approach to how we were gonna manage maintenance. We're gonna get out of the reactionary crisis mode. And we were gonna learn how to do things in a structured fashion using at that time, what was a mainframe computer system and the only input and output we had was through a terminal and a printer. So it was very early in the computer days. There were no such things as desktops uh, back in 1980. And by 84, when we had the system rolled out, we were really uh, using input through terminals and output through terminal screens and, and printing out data. But what it did was it shifted fundamentally how we were doing maintenance. We were planning and scheduling our work. And another uh, aspect of, uh, I think, Part of the enlightened approach Kodak took was we integrated machine performance into that. So we had metrics on how well our machines were operating based on uh, the PLCs that had begun to be uh, installed on some of our equipment versus the old analog controls. And we took that data and actually used it to help us optimize how we did PM. So uh, as in your case and mine, Doug, we were working for a company that, uh, that had a long-term view on what was continuous improvement and how were we going to drive that? And one of those things, even in the early 80s, was how to use systems to drive significant performance. After my career at Kodak, when I moved on, I called it being put on parole after 29 years. I uh, wound up working for several excellent companies. We had mentioned, uh, you and I had talked earlier about uh, at a stint at Mosaic Fertilizer Company, another proactive company that uh, believed in utilization of systems and, and being focused on continuous improvement. I worked for Axial Chemical, which was all part, I think now it's part of Wesley Chemical. And I worked in different roles, uh, plant engineer, reliability manager, maintenance manager. So, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, I had uh, several stops along the way after I had my long career at Kodak. Very good. So, Don, one of the things I, I remember 
from working with you is is you had some unique ways of of uh, motivating people and getting the best out of people. If you could yep. speak to that, and I know that's not on the uh, the stuff that we talked about beforehand on what we're in terms of leadership, but uh, it's something that I always admired about you is that you had that knack of uh, even some of those guys that were really tough to work with, right? You you really understood people enough to say, how do I motivate this guy to get the best out of him? Could you talk? Oh, about absolutely. That? Yeah, probably the best example I can give you that is when Kodak went down this initiative of what we call self-directed work teams, we were looking for our shop floor personnel, uh, team leaders in operations, uh, and we wanted to create group leaders in maintenance. We had a lot of guys that had long careers in the military, you know, literally decades of experience. And to say that they were a little bit crusty was, was uh, being generous. Now, I was a new I was a new supervisor and I was pretty young when I got promoted. I mean, I, I don't I don't even know if I was 30 yet. And uh, so these guys that were in their 50s and 60s, maybe decades in the military, they certainly didn't want to hear from this young guy, you know, who had only had a few years and as a journeyman and had been promoted to first line supervisor and was trying to purvey this new maintenance uh, operations system that was being created. They kind of didn't want to hear it. One thing I learned about people very early on is fundamentally people want to do a good job. More importantly, they want to enjoy their work. And probably most importantly of all is they want to be involved in, in the decisions they get made. They want people to listen to their ideas. And, and I picked up on that very early in my career. So I, I saw a common denominator in some of the people that were labeled as difficult to deal with. And obviously, those were the people that I had to deal with as a young supervisor. These guys were pretty difficult. Hey, uh, I wasn't one of those guys, was I? No, not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you had some coworkers who were. And, uh, and what I found out was if you give those folks an avenue where they're allowed to contribute and they feel they're being listened to and you're willing to act on their ideas or, more importantly, get them to work together, to come up with solutions, you can take the most difficult to deal with individual and the next thing you know, they're turning the corner and they want more responsibility and they begin to feel better about what they're doing and then they'll respect you as their leader because they know you're obligated to get the company the results they need, that's your responsibility. If you need to engage them and more importantly, empower them into getting those results that the company needs. And, and I seem to have developed a knack for that. And you already mentioned about Dr. Aubrey Daniels. I was at that class when he first came to Eastman Kodak and, and their online fo uh, forum on uh, LinkedIn is excellent. I'd recommend anybody to go to ADI and, and take a look at that. Uh, I really took heart uh, those principles of performance management and, and the analysis you could do using a very simple tool to help you understand why do people do what they do? And how can you motivate them to do what they're resisting to do? Uh, and those tools I carry with me to, the, to this very day. Let me dive, uh, divest for one real quick minute. I'll give you a, a home example. Uh, Martha and I have two girls. Uh, they're in their 40s now. But when they were children, I can remember distinctly one, uh, one evening, I'm sitting in the office, which was off the kitchen in our house. And I hear my wife barking at one, our eldest daughter, Ann, saying, and please take out the trash. And of course, Ann says, I'm doing homework, mom. I'll get it in a minute. Well, a few minutes later, I hear her mother bark at her again. 
Ann, please take out the drink. And of course, she didn't, and there was, and she got angry. So finally, she came into the office and said, please come out here and talk to Ann. So I walked out into the kitchen. I said, Ann, take out the trash. And she immediately got up from the table and took out the trash. And as she walked out the door, my wife said to me, how do you do that? I said, very simply, she knows her father is going to tell her once. And if she doesn't do what she knows she's supposed to do, there's going to be a consequence. And as a result, she knows that she has to do what she's been asked to do. And you, on the other hand, have taught her that she's going to, you're going to tell her three times before she does it. And that very simply is an example of the principles of performance management. People will behave based on what they perceive to be the consequences of their behavior. And they will usually err on what is the most positive reinforcing consequence to them, and they'll ignore the others, even if the others are very important. So those principles, I was very fortunate to be able to use those in the workplace and actually go through even the formal matrix that Aubrey Daniels developed around how to assess, well, how to determine what are the consequences that'll drive people's behavior. And to me, the success I've enjoyed has been fundamentally based on what I've been able to do to engage and empower people to get the results that the companies I've worked for have needed to get. So back to that motivation of the difficult people, I, I want to kind of circle back and talk about, you had mentioned the CMMS system, which at Kodak we was referred to it, it, as MISCAPS. You developed that, right? And I information you, system, computer-aided planning and scheduling, yes. One of the other things that came out of that, and I remember you specifically telling the guys in the building, right? And I took it to heart, which was, there are lots of things you guys been wanting to do and they never get done because you don't have the data to prove what you're talking about is right. And that's what this system is for us to say, let's put the information in on what we work on and how long it takes and what it costs. And now you've got that tool to look back and say, hey, when I say that we ought to do this, here's the data that supports that argument, right? Absolutely. That, that was one of those important things that I still today, when I go to companies and I see them struggling, that you know, the maintenance guys just say, hey, you know, we ought to be doing this. And I'll say, where's your data, right? And they look at you like, wait. I said, well, you must have a CMMS. Where's, where's the information that supports what you're talking about? And then they kind of make the face and they put their hands up to their head and they go, oh, so that's why we're supposed to be putting in that stuff, right? And Absolutely. you have to make it, people understand what it's for, right? I'll, if I'll, give, you, I'll give you another example. One of, the, one of the things that used to frustrate me as a young mechanic was uh, we had, thousands of preventative maintenance inspections every time a piece of equipment failed the first thing out of everybody's every manager's mouth was we need a preventative maintenance inspection for that piece of equipment that failed might have been the first time it failed in 50 years but we we generated a pm for it so we had hundreds of these things that used to be done weekly monthly daily yearly semi-annually and one of the frustrations from the maintenance mechanics was why are we doing these preventative maintenance inspections taking up all this time and we're accomplishing nothing. So one of the things I used to sell our computerized maintenance management system was, well, let's look at the data. How often are we doing it? What results are we getting from doing it? And what is the benefit? What have we saved by detecting a problem or changing out a warrant piece of equipment? And how, in fact, how many of these PMs are accomplishing nothing? And that became a very valuable tool because the mechanics saw that and say, if I do a good job and I can prove that I'm doing this weekly preventive maintenance inspection and we're not getting anything out of it, 
maybe they'll listen to me and say, we don't need to be doing this. And so that was one of the aspects I tried to sell to our folks was we can get a lot out of the system by using it. More importantly, it'll very much focus on where our failures are and what do we need to do to eliminate those failures. And then there were some good methodologies that came along by some enthusiastic young guys talking about this whole reliability-centered maintenance thing and failure modes and all that other stuff that I found out people, when they're taught that, will very much embrace those methodologies and use them to drive significant levels of improvement. Yeah, and that's a, a key learning um, that that comes from also with, with putting that information or data in of what you worked on is understanding those failure modes, right? Yes. Because yeah. what we've done over the past couple of, I shouldn't even say couple, multiple decades is we've yep. kind of changed our, our maintenance people into component replacers. Right? Yes. They don't talk about why things fail. They just say, well, the pump failed. What was wrong with it? It won't work anymore. And why won't it work anymore? Right. Because the coupling come undone. Well, why did the coupling come undone? Right. And you got to yep. get them to start thinking about, was it really the pump or was it the motor? Because we all have been there where all of a sudden somebody says, I think it's the pump. And then you find out later it was the motor, right? That's what they actually replaced. Oops, I replaced both of them. So what did you do with a perfectly good pump? It's in the shop being rebuilt. What? Yes, <laughs> and, and, and another thing, Doug, that I, that I was able to sell this whole concept of being proactive about maintenance is uh, what is the effect of, Finding out uh, using vibration analysis, you've got a bad bearing on a pump. And the very first question every manager I've ever worked for asks is, how long is it going to last? Well, unless you have a crystal ball, you're not going to know it. It could be a day, a week, a month, or 10 years. But you've got a bearing that you've detected is in the failure mode, right? Well, the biggest thing to understand about that concept of predictive maintenance is if you don't do anything about it, if you know you've got a bad bearing and you run it to failure, it's no longer a $200 bearing chain. It's a $5,000 broken pump shaft that has to be replaced. And that whole concept of ancillary damage that happened as a result of not proactively planning and scheduling your maintenance that's been identified through a predictive technology is very powerful. And when you capture that data and say, when we, when we have monitoring on our equipment, we need to take action. Because even today, 2021, I'll guarantee you, there are companies that are putting in continuous vibration monitoring and finding out they have things in failure mode and they're doing nothing about them. And in fact, still running some equipment because it's so critical, they're gonna run it to failure. And if you don't happen to have that part or the parts in Texas and you're in Maine, uh, you're gonna have additional downtime that's gonna erase any gains you might have, could have gained from having that equipment being monitored and proactively repairing it. Well, those concepts are important and, uh, and people need to take them to heart and have a very clear strategy and vision as to what they're going to do with these new systems and this new technology as they bring it online. Excellent point. And really, you know, the companies that struggle with it struggle with because they haven't educated the right people and, and what those technologies are and how to manage them. But going on in a little bit different direction here, you've had a career that spans obviously over 40 years, right? Yeah. And I, I'm pretty close to that same boat. Uh, looking back on your career, if you would, if you could tell us about a, a couple of mentors that you had and uh, even name names, uh, what did you learn from those people? Well, I'll tell you, one of the ones I, I know that you probably know is a gentleman by the name of Gary Shaw. 
Uh, Barry was one of our, uh, one of our, I'll call it in the early days, a reliability manager. And one of the things I learned from uh, Gary was we were implementing a metric system called maintenance excellence at the time where we would go in and analyze a maintenance department in a specific area uh, and look at some key metrics on how well were they doing functioning as a maintenance unit. Um, and what came out of that, what I learned from guys like Gary was there were some very simple concepts you could apply that would allow you to position yourself to be very successful. And one simple thing that I've used over the decades is learn to do things, learn to do everything one way, needs to be done the right way, and that needs to be the best way, that needs to be done that way every time. And that's that standardized work, standard approach to, uh, to getting things done. He also, one of the things that uh, Gary was a big advocate of is trying to seek out uh, what was the best way to run your business? What what were the best methodologies out there? Uh, Gary was one of the founding members uh, at Kodak of uh, a plant engineering and maintenance conference that went on every year for over 50 years. And they had uh, many big companies, General Motors, Eli Lilly, uh, Frito-Lay. There were many companies that participated in this data sharing between maintenance and engineering organizations. And there, people like Gary brought that brought those methodologies back from those kinds of events and shared them with people like me to say, you know, here's a, here's a guy that I met from Frito-Lay. This is what they're doing with their preventative maintenance program. Give him a phone call and kind of pick his brain to see what you can do about us. So it was guys like Gary that, that made a big difference in my career. Uh, plus, some of the companies I worked for had outstanding uh, uh, central players that were responsible for in the case of like Mosaic, I, you and I both know Malcolm Austin. Uh, Malcolm was the reliability manager for all of Mosaic and another individual, very powerful motivator to seek out and deploy the best methodologies. How do we engage our people? How do we become very data-driven and very focused on eliminating failures across our facilities, in this case in Central Florida? So guys like Malcolm and Gary were instrumental to me in uh, and taking what I had learned and how to deploy it out onto the shop floor. Very good. Um, so the Gary Shaw lesson we talked about, learn the best way, teach the best way, make sure it's repeatable, right? The interesting part about that is, and the power of it, I, I think I best heard put forth by Jack Nicholas Jr., uh, who came out of the U.S. Navy. Jack's, you know, one of those... Uh, kings of reliability, so to speak. He's been around for many, many years, and he talks about the data of changing their PM program to say, here's step-by-step step the way we're going to do it. And in doing that, he actually changed the percentage of uh, conditional probability failure curves where they greatly reduce their infant mortality by understanding that what they do is tradespeople, right? If they work with precision, they do the things the same, proven way, the same way every time, it reduces that infant mortality, takes it from like 68% to, I think it was 27. Crazy, mm -hmm. crazy stuff. And when, when you work with somebody like that, and that, again, the leadership aspect of pushing that forward with people that go, oh, I know how to do it. I know what that means. I know. I don't need that sheet of paper, right? Let's prove it. Show me the data, right? I just touched on one of the most important things later on in my career that I focused on heavily. You mentioned about not needing the piece of paper. Uh, there was a very senior mechanic that I worked with, again, when I was at Mosaic. 
uh, and, and we were having uh, repeated motor failures uh, in a specific part of the facility. And uh, so when I went out to investigate, you know, looking over the fact this was an, uh, an obvious sore point in this part of the facility, uh, and these motors have been failing repeatedly, and I was watching them install a motor for one that had failed. And so I asked the mechanic who had been with the company over 30 years, I said, I noticed you're just about done, you know, installing a motor. Where's your torque wrench? And he says, torque wrench? He says, I know, I know what tight is. I don't need a torque wrench to be able to, to uh, put a motor. I said, well, what did you do to align the motor? And how did you know that you aligned it successfully? He goes, well, you know, I got my straight edge right here. You know, and so my point of saying that was the whole concept of precision maintenance. What is the best way to do things? What are the best techniques? What are the best methods? What are the tools that you need to do the job with precision? And so we went through the process of getting someone who knew uh, how to do laser alignment, brought their torque wrench with them, brought their precision shims with them, and we went through the process. And he goes, you know what? I guess I haven't been installing motors the right way for a long time. And I said, yeah. that's, that's what this is all about, learning how to do things one way, the right way, the best way every time. Very good. So, Don, it's been said by different people that you can either be a leader or a manager. What do you think of that statement? Uh, I think it's very relevant because I've met a lot of managers whose people skills were essentially zero. They were totally focused on what they considered to be their only objective, which was obtaining results. And sometimes that morphed into they began to slowly develop a little bit of contempt for the people that they perceived to be getting in the way of their getting results. People that were not doing their job, not getting things done. Now that's a manager, someone who wants to get involved in telling people what needs to be done, what results must be obtained, or bad consequences will occur. And there's leaders, people that understand if you build the skill and capability of people, by default, you will get the results that you need because your equipment will be installed and maintained and operated with precision so that the equipment runs reliable most of the time. And if you're proactive in making repairs that you identify through a good solid preventative and predictive maintenance program, all of a sudden the results come readily. Very good. So <clears throat> last question. Also looking for your opinion or your belief on this. Is leadership a natural skill or a learned skill? I think it's a natural skill that requires lifelong learning. Uh, what I mean by a natural skill is if you don't have the drive, if you don't have the curiosity, if you don't have the willingness to take the risk of driving significant levels of change, you can't possibly be a good leader. And there are some people, I believe, that really don't have those capabilities. They're, they're not very curious about why things are wrong. They don't like to challenge the status quo. They don't like to take a big risk because you know maybe it won't work out well. So it's very difficult to be a good leader if you don't have that driving curiosity and that willingness to change. And as I've mentioned already, I think a couple of times in our talk this morning, um, my belief is very firm that your people skills far outweigh your technical skills. And, and also, the, the I think what's also undervalued is getting people to work together. 
which requires good leadership. I can remember how many times I have heard this similar phrase in various uh, different types of uh, processes. If the operators knew how to run the machine, it wouldn't break down. And then the operator would say, if the mechanics knew how to fix it, it wouldn't break. And so they're pointing at each other as being part of the problem. And in reality, they need to work together to figure out what are the process problems and what are the mechanical problems. And then you put your heads together to decide what's the best path to fix those. So I think, I think leaders are pretty natural, but it takes lifelong learning. To this very day, I'm still learning things that I didn't know, that I didn't learn over the last 40 years. And, and, and I'm very proud of that. Very good. Well, Don, it's been great talking to you and catching up. Uh, good luck with that retirement. I know yes, that's a special time of life. I'm pretty close to it myself. I've called myself semi-retired at this point in life, but uh, it's been great to talk to you and to see your smiling face. Uh, have a great day, my friend. Doug, it was always a privilege and an honor, and uh, God bless you, and keep, uh, keep kissing them grandkids. All right. This is Doug Clarknett with a Leadership Connection. Have a great day.